We are privileged to have Brooks Buser here um, giving a report. A lot of you have never heard, I mean, or you've seen Brooks. Um, a lot of you never heard from him personally. You've all probably, especially if you've been coming here for any short, any length of time, even last week if it was your first time, you heard me mention the name of Brooks Buser and Yembe Yembe because we pray for them every week. And um, Brooks is here to give a missionary report on what, he, what he's been doing. We have the privilege of supporting him in small ways like prayer and some financial support. I wouldn't say that um, we've been an overwhelmingly huge support for Brooks and Nina, but we've been able to be a part of what they're doing, and we're incredibly thankful for the privilege of being a part of that. And uh, Brooks is going to give us an introduction that you want to come up, Brooks. He's going to give us a rundown of what's happened in a report and get in the word with us. So we're very thankful. So, good? All right. <clears throat> very, very glad to be here. Uh, yeah, I, I know Chad briefly. He, knew, uh, he got to know Dad pretty well, and through that relationship, got to know him a bit. It's always a crack up when I get an email from Chad, and I'm over in Yembe We get him through radio waves. We're way out in the jungle out there. And uh, his emails are always deep, profound, sometimes lengthy, sometimes very short. But uh, I imagine it's somewhat like his teaching. But anyways, um, seriously, you guys are blessed. I wish I could take the DNA of this church and splice it into other churches. We've been home, myself and my wife, first Nina, there's, there's my wife and my boy, Bo, raise your hand. And my folks are here for today, too. We've been speaking at churches since we've been back from New Guinea. Uh, just been back for four months now. And to know this church and to know its heartbeat, what you guys are about, and the things that you put first. And churches prioritize. Man, they prioritize in what they talk about, how they spend their money, what they put their efforts towards in teaching, what is central. And to be able to take some of your guys' DNA, just getting to know some more of your people, even this last week, uh, yeah, I'm very, very excited for this church. Glad you have Chad at the helm. Keep an eye on him. And somebody kick his butt out the door when Brandon dedicates his New Testament so he makes it over to BM. I know he's not a big camper, so it'll be perfect for him. So anyways, <laughs> I just, like Chad said, some of you guys know me, some of you guys don't. Uh, and I wanted to give a brief recap this morning, and then we're going to show a quick little video so you get to see a little bit about what happened in Yembe Yembe last year, last October when the New Testament was actually dedicated over there. Uh, Nina and I, Nina is actually a valley girl. She uh, was raised up in Turlock, Turlock High. Uh, She's a big bulldog. Anyways, bulldogs or eagles? Bulldogs. Okay, anyways. Uh, She's still got her cheerleading uniform. Uh, Won't get into that. But um, very, very stoked. She came down. We went to college together. I came back from Papua New Guinea. Those of you guys that know my story, uh, I've talked with Dad, I've taken the perspectives class, was raised over in Papua New Guinea. And came back, wanted to join the Marine Corps, was going to do the Marines, and Dad talked me into going to two years of college. If I would go to two years of college, he'd give me his blessing to go in the Marine Corps afterwards. Went there, and he knew better than I. I fell in love with this girl. She was actually about three weeks away from getting engaged to another guy, so we had to move fast to make sure the Lord's will was done. (laughs) Met her graduated. She got a degree in counseling psychology. I got a degree in business administration. Like most college students, though, we came out of it with uh, quite a few uh, dollars in debt, about $60,000 to be exact, and we were wondering what we were going to do. Missions was on our radar, but it was not something that we felt we were going to be involved in. And so I got this job as a baseline accountant for a company called Trespa North America, Went to work for them, worked my way up from baseline accountant to finance manager, eventually to CFO, and by God's grace, within nine months of taking the job, we were out of debt, ready to do uh, various things. And it was an exciting time, exciting for us, because we'd been in college, didn't have two nickels to rub together then, and things were starting to come together. We had our eye on a particular house that we wanted to buy, a couple vehicles, different things like that. Our unborn son, I knew the private school he was going to go to already, the water polo team that he was going to play on, the football team, maybe he's going to make it to the Chargers, I don't know, we'll see. But uh, all of these dreams, literally the American dream laid out for us, ready to go. And by God's grace, by his grace, he broke into our lives and he broke in and we were changed forever. And it wasn't something mystical. We always hear about this famous missionary call. This was our call. And this is the only call I believe that people get when they go 
into full-time ministry overseas. I help look after 141 missionaries over in Papua New Guinea. And of the 141 missionaries, none of them received a call. None of them felt this burning in the bosom or saw in the sky Papua New Guinea or walked out and saw it in the sand somewhere or anything like that. It all comes from this book. This book is our north star. It's our guiding light. And from this book, from passages like Acts 1-6, we're going to talk about today in Matthew 28, Romans 15, these different passages, God's heartbeat for the nations, for the nations. That's our call. And so when uh, Nina and I were going through our devotions and it became impressed on us more and more that this is what God has us doing we, uh, I went into my boss's office, handed in my three-month notice, got the cursing of a lifetime, uh, but walked away from that. We joined a group called New Tribes Mission. New Tribes trained us in how to take the gospel someplace where it has never been before, to go to an unreached people group, a place where if somebody doesn't go, they will have no possible way to know the name of Jesus Christ, to understand what he has done for them, and they will go to a Christless eternity. We, I, I think sometimes in the U.S. we're confused about unreached people groups. I, we were in Iowa last week speaking to a church there, and a lady came up afterward, and she goes, well, we have unreached people groups in Iowa too. Not true, not true. By virtue of having two fingers that can change a TV dial, that can dial in a radio station, feet that can walk to a church, a car that can drive... Bakersfield, Iowa, the United States, is not unreached. We have unsaved people, but we don't have unreached people. Unreached people have no hope, no gospel witness in their language unless somebody goes to them. That's the definition of unreached, and that's what we wanted to do with our lives. Take the gospel somewhere where it hasn't been before, and there is no possibility of them getting it unless someone goes to them. And so uh, we packed up our stuff, went off to New Tribes training, got a whole wealth of skills in how to live in a foreign environment over there. And in 2003, we boarded the plane, headed over to Papua New Guinea, learned the language of Papua New Guinea. Most countries now, if you're going to take the gospel somewhere where it hasn't been before, you've got to learn two languages. You've got to learn the language of the country, and you've got to learn the language of the specific people group within that country that is unreached. And so we went in there. I knew it from growing up over there, so it didn't take me too long. But my wife, six to nine months, it took, us to, or took her to learn pidgin English. This took me out to now. Suppose Yawi op, you in Ablo Harem. Suppose Yawi pass and by Hatumas, blow on a Yublo cold country, Namiblo Narbla Apogata. That's the, we're not speaking in tongues, it hasn't gone charismatic here yet. Um, <laughs> we, that's the language of Papua New Guinea. And if you listen real close, it's kind of like a Hawaiian Pinglish type thing. This platok me outim lo you now, this talk that I'm outing to you now. Suppose yao blo you op, suppose your yaos, if your ears are open, if you're concentrating, you inap lo harim. It's enough for you to hear. Taso suppose yaoi pas, but if your ears are pas, if they're closed, if you're not concentrating, sorry true and by hatumas. Sorry true, it's going to be hard too much. And so that's pidgin, that's the language of Papua New Guinea. And after we'd learned that language and we were fully acclimated to the country, one of the saddest things uh, I believe I've ever seen, New Tribes leadership came to us and they handed us a list. And on this list were seven tribes that had been asking for missionaries for five years or more. They don't make the list until they've been asking for those five years. And they handed us this list and we actually picked a tribe called Tuwadi. And uh, the day came, we asked the pilot if we could book the plane for the following Monday. Plane flies in, we go down to the airfield, pilot gets out, and he says, guys, i got bad news for you. Tuwadi, the airstrip that you're going to land at, is underwater. What's your second choice? So we took out the list, looked at it, and Yembi Yembi was our second choice. Loaded up in the plane, uh, we had a water bottle about like this. We took a piece of paper, rolled it up after we emptied the water out, flew over Yembi Yembi, and it just had a note in it saying, we're going to try and make it here before the sun goes down today. We will be hiking in. And we're going to come uh, take a look at your tribe. Flew over. Pilot opened up the window. We dropped the note out. We saw a little kid running around with the bottle. Hopefully he didn't get hit in the head with it. Flew off. Landed in another location. Canoed for about six hours. A motor canoe. And then we hiked the last hour. And we made it into Yembi Yembi. And the Yembi Yembis are 
You'll see it on the video. There are a party waiting to happen. They are excitable people. We stepped off the canoe, and in a very excited fashion, they take a hunk of red mud, and they take it, and they push it into your forehead, and then they rub it all the way down your face to about your Adam's apple. Then they take uh, diced-up flowers and flower petals, and they throw it at you, and it kind of sticks to you. You look like a walking piece of potpourri, but... That's the MVMVs, and they were so, so excited. And we went back and forth, two or three visits, and finally we said, okay, we're going to be your missionaries. We committed to them. We are going to come. We're going to learn your language and culture. We're going to teach you what this book has to say. They'd heard a lot about this book. We're going to teach you what it means. And in fact, before we even teach you, we're going to translate it into your language so you can follow along and know that it isn't our talk. It's the talk that comes out of this book. But in order to do that, we have to teach them how to read and write. In order to do that, we've got to develop an alphabet, all sorts of tasks that we had to do. And so we moved in. And one of the most amazing things, I remember well, one of Nina's tribal fathers standing up. And he said, that's great. I'm so happy that you guys are going to come live among us. But if you're going to come, we don't want you to come like the tourists come. And they'd had tourists, mostly from Europe, and they'd fly in in a helicopter. They'd land, and they'd have about five or six hired guys that would hold the people back from the helicopter, and they'd snap a bunch of pictures and eat a picnic lunch and get their memories and buy maybe a couple things here and there. And then they'd hop back in the helicopter, and they'd head out. And the MBMs had seen that, and they did not want that. They said, if you're going to come live among us, we want you to come as insiders, we want you to be part of the community. And what that means in Yembi is there's four clans. There's the ostrich clan, the eagle clan, the black cockatoos, and the toucans. We want you adopted into a clan, into specific families. We didn't know this until about three months into it. It's a subtle insult in Yembi to call somebody by their name. If you really, really are part of the fabric, you call somebody by how you're related to them because the whole tribe is interconnected. Brother-in-law, father-in-law, sister, cousin, uncle, father, brother, all these different terms, learning how you're connected into the fabric of the village. And I, t- I praise God that that's how the Yembi Yembis wanted to do it. And it took us a long time. It took us two and a half years to learn their language. Finally, in 2008, we started presenting the gospel. And we didn't start in Romans. No, we started back Genesis 1.1. We started at the very beginning and teaching them these redemptive analogies, these stories that would someday come to fruition. The entire Bible, including the Old Testament, is about one guy. And the whole of it builds to this one guy in the crescendo when he arrives on the scene to put the tree branch back in the tree when Adam and Eve broke out from God. And us as these little leaves, these little saplings that are dying on the vine because of what our ancestor did. And the one is coming, the guy is coming, who has the power to put the branch back in the tree. That guy, when he arrives on the scene, the amazing day it was for us when we got to present the gospel. And there's a whole story behind that that I'll I'll maybe share some other time. But the Yembis received the gospel the day they got it. We estimate that about 40 to 50 uh, understood who Jesus was and what he had done for them. The church was born in Yembi We went from there and continued to teach through Acts, through Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, First and Second Thessalonians, back to John, to First, Second, Third John, and finally into Revelation. The whole knowledge of Scripture, bringing the Yembis along with us, so that they would be the next teachers, the next disciples. In Yembi to this day, a guy gets up and teaches, but his disciples sit with him. He teaches three points of the lesson; they teach one. This is a job that you're working yourself out of intentionally. You're not meant to be there forever. You're not the, our guys would say, you're not the mama dog. Eventually we've got to grow up and you've got to walk away. We've got to be our own people. And so the church grew and continued to be discipled. And through this whole process, we were working on the translation, translating the New Testament so they would have it in their language. The Yembiembis say, the paper talks back. This is a copy of the New Testament in Yembiembi. The paper talks back to us. So it was never our word against their ancestors. It was this book And what this God, what he says, versus what their ancestors believed. And that was the choice. That was what they had to make. And so I want to show you this video real quick. It's just a little five-minute clip of uh, what happened in Yembi when we actually had the dedication. After nine years, the moment has come. The missionaries have phased out of the tribe leaving a church body with trained pastors for a new generation. 
the last step is providing them with the Bible in their native tongue. This occasion is honored by a dedication that brings hundreds of native believers, neighboring missionaries, and even supporters from back home. It's a celebration of heavenly proportions. to wonder what am I doing here will this matter will it even last now I just stand in wonder how did God take us a few regular people to this remote village in the middle of the jungle to plant the seed of his word and watch it grow watch it transform and see the dead brought to life and hear a new people proclaim God's glory in their own language
this is just one story of one tribe. But there are thousands just like them, still waiting to hear. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. Yes, we are going to get into the Word this morning, so I do hope you brush your Bibles. I want to touch on some stuff that I know, I know without a shadow of a doubt that you guys have talked about at this church. It's been taught, it's been preached, it's been explained to you, but to remind us of why we do this. Why is missions, why is getting the gospel to the last places that haven't heard, why is that such a high priority? Is it a fad? Is it a Western thing? Is it the guilt we feel when we see places, that we know of places? Is it something that is unique to you guys? Or is this something that holds greater consequence because of the person who gave these marching orders? Is it a list of things that we do as a church and missions is one of them? I sure hope not. And I don't believe the scriptures reflect that at all. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is getting ready to go back into heaven and he's giving his last words, his last exhortations to the disciples before he heads out. And it's real significant because you've got Matthew 28, which is a different time. These are different different locations. But as Jesus heads out, he gives these last words and he changes something. He flips. The disciples know they've been talking with Jesus for the time since he's been resurrected. And now he's getting ready to depart. They've been talking about these things. And so they have certain assumptions that are built in based off of how things were before Jesus came. How redeeming the world, how getting the nations to understand about God, there was a plan in place. And Jesus is going to flip that plan in Acts. And it says here in Acts 1.6, So they met together and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And a lot of guys give a lot of flack to the disciples, like, wow, they've been with Jesus this whole time and they totally missed the boat. They're still thinking Israel. No, no, no. The disciples were still thinking how the nations are going to understand, but in the Old Testament paradigm, in the old system, the nations come to Israel. The nations came to them. Through Israel, God's glory was proclaimed. Through Israel, he was made known to the nations. Don't turn to these places, but I just want to touch on three verses real quick. Psalms 67, 1 and 2 says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among the nations. Through Israel, salvation is known among the nations. The nations come to them. Through Israel. Isaiah 51, 3 through 4. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. Through Israel and how God deals with them, the nations will know. They will know of God. God's plan through the ages. He always had a plan how he's going to redeem them. But the disciples are thinking in an Old Testament paradigm. They're thinking in a way that was previous to when Jesus came. Finally, Ezekiel 36, 23. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them, Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Through Israel they would know. The disciples weren't off in left field. The disciples were looking for Jesus to restore Israel so that the nations would know. And Jesus changes everything here. He says in verse 7, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That was it. That was it. A complete paradigm shift. They no longer come to you. You go to them. There's, There's this... 
idea that's been floating around. And again, man, I've been in Iowa. I heard it again in Iowa. Man, we have so many people from the nations coming to us, coming to us. Put aside the missiological components of actually evangelizing them and getting them to go back to their people groups. But that's an Old Testament paradigm. The New Testament paradigm is we go to them. We go to them. The church goes. That's our last command. Those are our last orders. It follows up here in verse 9. It says this, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid, them from, hid him from their sight. That was it. That was the last marching orders as Jesus left this earth. You go to them. You go to them. And guys, they took it seriously. They took it seriously. They looked at the model that Jesus had done They looked at the model that Jesus had given them, and they followed it to the T. Aren't you glad that Jesus was a missionary God? He didn't stand in heaven. Gabriel, rest of you angels, hey, why don't you go down and tell these guys? Why don't you guys go down there? He didn't stand in heaven and sprinkle tracks down us. He didn't come work through the Pharisees, work through the leaders, find the influential people. He came and he lived among us. He became an insider. He lived for 30 years preparing. He was the definition of the missionary God. He lived. He lived it out. He didn't leave it to other people. He did it all. And the disciples saw this. They recognized this. You know that 10 of the 12 disciples died in foreign lands, buried different places around the earth. They took this command seriously. The only reason the two didn't make it out is because they were martyred so fast right there in Jerusalem. Ten of the twelve buried, never to come back. That's our heritage. That's our lineage. That's that's what our forefathers in the faith were about to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth. I remember when uh, we presented the gospel to the Yembis. We presented the gospel on a Friday what an incredible day. What a roller coaster of emotions to see different people that we'd invested in, uh, different guys that I had high hopes for, and they didn't turn out to be the bright shining stars, and then different people that I had no hope for, and God had chosen them. And these people start to become saved, and we start to see the reaction Friday, Saturday, and we decided we were going to take a week off from teaching just because it was so tense and raw in the village. The different ones that had gotten saved and were starting to turn their backs on some of the beliefs of before. And Sunday night, uh, I'm laying in bed, and our house in Yembe Yembe was up on poles. We had these poles, and about 16 of them, two rows, and it's up eight feet off the ground. And the Yembe's, Yembe's are night owls. They are late, late night people. I don't mean like 12. I mean like 2 and 3 in the morning. And so they, uh, if they have something interesting going on, or if somebody gets uh, sickness or bit by a snake or whatever, they're going to come up, and they, they don't care if you're sleeping or whatever. They're going to wake you up. So... They hid this pole in the jungle. It's about five feet long, and I tried to find it and burn it a few times. And they, would, they knew where I slept in my bed in the house. And again, it's up on stilts. So they would take this pole, and eh, he's right about there. Boom! And they'd slam the bottom of our floor, and it'd, just, it'd bring you up. you think that Jesus was coming back. It was so loud. But it, sure enough, Sunday night, I'm laying there in bed, and wham, wham, two hits. And what in the world? So I sit up straight, and... Who is it? Niniala, Niniala. Who's, who's out there? And typical YMB answer, Anan, me. Okay, what's your name? Yala. Oh, sorry, it's me, Pops Lucas. Oh, Pops, okay, what's going on? Did somebody get bit by a snake? No, 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 everything's good. Just come out, we want to talk to you. Get outside, and uh, it's rude in Yembe Yembe to shine your light on somebody's face. So you got to kind of shine on the feet, and you kind of work your way up to the shorts. Ah, I recognize those shorts. All right. Was, oh, I recognize that kneecap. He's got really bad grilly or whatever. And you can see and recognize, okay, we got, oh my goodness. Okay, so we got about 12 believers, 12 guys that I know for a fact because I've heard their testimonies are believers. And I'm, what's going on, guys? And uh, the, they're standing there, and Pops Luke is the spokesman for him. He's my father in the tribe. And uh, Pops Luke says, when are we going? What do you mean, when are we going? When are we going to the next tribe that hasn't heard about this talk? When are we going to our sister tribe who we know will burn in hell if we don't get there? When are we going? And I didn't have the heart to tell them right then and there that, hey, you know what? We're going to wait. We're going to have to teach through some of these books. But their fervor, their zeal, when are we going? When are we going? Two days saved, 48 hours 
when are we going? When are we going to the next tribe that hasn't heard this talk yet? So impressed, so thankful for that heartbeat that God put in them, getting the message to the ends. And I want to go to one other passage. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to Luke 18.18. 18. Because I think there's this subtle idea that has slipped into the church that somehow doing things like this, and I know Chad and I have had this discussion, doing radical things that shouldn't be radical. These are everyday things that our God commanded of us have become radical because they're so rare. Radical giving. Radical living in your community. Radical sending and radical going. Radical because it's so out of place. It's so rare. It doesn't happen that much. And I believe there's this example here in Luke 18, 18 about a young man who unfortunately epitomizes this. He was about being close to Jesus, but he did not want the radical aspects of it. He did not want it all, and I think it's a good lesson for us. There's this young guy... And Jesus is talking to him, and we know from other passages that this guy was a good man. By the definition of his society, by the definition of the local church, he was a good guy who loved Jesus. He probably, if he was in our day and age, he'd probably be in church. He probably, he might even be up here singing a couple songs. He might be one of the guys who gives the most to Christmas time for the children, right? Save the children, uh, Samaritan's Purse. He was a guy who was active in what he knew to be true. But there was an aspect of it that he would not give up. It says here in verse 18, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do not to go to hell? What's the bar? What's the standard? What's the cheapest way I can get in to heaven and avoid hell? Guys, avoiding hell is not the goal. Avoiding hell and going to heaven, sneaking over the line, is not the goal. That's not the goal. And Jesus very wisely and astutely bends his mind around to greater principles. He says here in verse 19, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Jesus lays out for him the requirements of the law. And this guy in his arrogance says, All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. All these I have kept. And Jesus makes one of the most remarkable statements, I believe, in the New Testament. He equates, in the next verse, salvation and discipleship and ties them together so that they cannot be separated. You cannot be saved and not be a disciple. Salvation and discipleship are bound, and salvation is free. It's a gift of God so that nobody can boast. But discipleship will cost you. Discipleship will cost you. In some cases, it'll cost you everything. And Jesus ties the two of them together. In this verse, he says, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Assuming that you followed the law, assuming that you attend church, assuming that you're active in your community, you still lack one thing. Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. He took the thing that the young man loved the most. His money. He said, give that to me. Then come follow me. Then come be my disciple. And guys, if you're going to do something with your life, Jesus is going to put his hand on an area of your life that you've got both hands wrapped around. He's going to put his finger on that and says, I want that. I want that. Then come follow me. Then come follow me. And the degree to which you're able to release that will determine your effectiveness, will determine your closeness with your Savior. The degree to which you're releasing that thing that you hold tight. So for some of us, it is what the same guy had. It's his possessions. For some of us, it's releasing those things to be used for greater good, for kingdom good. For some of us, it's thinking about the prospect of taking the gospel somewhere where it hasn't been before. Leaving behind the comfort, the familiarity, the safety of home. 
oh my goodness. For some of us, man, it's past the point of us going, but thinking about sending those closest to us, sending our kids, the one area you don't want to touch in America, man, the family, family has become huge, good, good thing. Is there something greater? Is there something even greater than the family? I believe there is. I remember uh, when I went in and I handed in my three-month notice to my boss, and uh, he took me aside and he gave me a tongue lashing, and then he started listing the different things that I was giving up, that uh, Nina and I were giving up, and we knew the company fairly well. Our son had been born while we were with the company, and uh, he started listing the bank account. Yeah, that's going to take a hit. Uh, 401k, yeah, it's not going to do so well. Health insurance, eh, New Tribes isn't really big on health insurance. Um, and he started listing off all these things, and he got, and I'd already thought about all these, and I'm, okay, got it, got it, got it. Thanks for reminding me. Appreciate it. Getting through, and then he got to one that I hadn't thought about, and he said, do you realize that you're giving up your future, but you're also giving up your son's future? You realize that you're going to take him to a place that has substandard medical care? You realize that he is not going to go to that school that has a very good academic uh, tilt to it? You realize that you're going to put him in a location where you, you very well could see him get sick. You might see him die. You might end up burying him over there. You ready for that? You realize you're sacrificing his future as well? Golly. Just rolling it around right in there. I went home that night and I just talked to my wife. And Are we doing the right thing? Are we doing the right thing? Laid in bed at night. Man, some tears shed. Lord, really? Really? The degree to which you're able to let go of those things that are closest to you. Man, that was a hard one. That was the hardest one for us in saying, God, man, you brought him into this world. We trust you with him. We trust you with him. The degree to which you're able to let go of those things. And in verse 23, the saddest thing says here, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. The implication being his wealth was too big to follow Jesus. Jesus I like you from a distance, but if you ask me to let go of that thing, thanks but no thanks. Thanks but no thanks. We follow the passage through and we find out this guy isn't even saved. We will not find him among the elect when we get to heaven. He loved the idea of Jesus, but when it came to that one particular thing, he would not let go of it. He was not able to let go of the thing that tied him down. And it's comical when we think of it today. What he gave up being a disciple of Jesus, possibly being with Peter, John, James, those guys. He said no to that. For a hunk of ground in Galilee? For a couple horses? It's comical. The Yembies, they, they laughed like crazy. What? What? This idiot? Chickens, ground, we've got all that stuff too. He gave up being a disciple of Jesus for that. Guys, in the scope of time, we look back and it's comical, but what will people say about us? What will people say about us? This is what he gave his life for. This is what she did with her life. She was presented with this opportunity to motivate those around her. Her sphere of influence was this big. And this is what she did with it. What will people say about you? What will people say about me? In the scope of history, what you give your life for, what will people say about it in 50 years, in 20 years, in 5 years? We're all going to give our life for something. I want to close this morning. And tell you a story about Yembi Yembi. Uh, one of the saddest jobs when I got into leadership was uh, this. One of the things we do is we vet who gets on that list. There's these tribes that send out letters, and they send out letters, and I got a couple of them with me today uh, if you want to see them. But different tribes, they send out letters asking for missionaries. And uh, this one tribe that we'd heard about was called Gatamambu. And Gatamambu had been asking for about two or three years, and so the final item, agenda item on one of our meetings was, okay, who's going to draw the short straw to actually go in there? The Gatamambu people didn't know how to read and write. They didn't even know the national language, and so uh, we had to draw straws, and I drew the short straw. And so 
I'm smiling about that, and I get on the plane, fly back into Yemby Yemby, and tell my wife, and tell her I'm going to have to go for next week. I'm going to be gone for most of the week. I've got to go out to this place, and we've got to find out if this is real. And so I asked my tribal father, Lucas, if he'll come with me, and we're going to go take a look at this place. And he'd heard about it. He knew a couple words in their language, and he knew an intermediary language, and so he was a good choice. So the plane arrives. We load up. We load a ton of rice because we don't know how far we're going to have to hike what the distance is, all this other kind of stuff. We load up, do the same thing with the water bottle, fly over where we think the GPS coordinates are. For Gatamambu, we see a patch of villages, and so we drop the note telling them we're coming in that afternoon and uh, so we don't get a spear in the back or anything like that and uh, fly off. And we keep flying and flying and flying and flying, and I'm starting to sweat because, I mean, you're flying about two minutes in the plane. That's about three hours on the trail. And so we keep going, keep going, keep going, and we finally land at this airstrip, get out, load in a motor canoe, go in that for quite a while, and then we strap on the hiking boots and the backpack, and we start hiking. We hike and hike and hike and hike and hike. Finally make it to the sister village of Gatamambu called Yarakai. Hike into Yarakai, and uh, people don't know that we're coming, and so they're kind of questioning, what, what's going on, all this kind of stuff. And so we tell them we're going to Gatamambu, and they know that their sister village, Gatamambu, is kind of boonies. They're out there. They don't, they're a little bit uh, off the beaten path, so to say. And so they, we get a little entourage. We get about 20 adults and about 40 kids that want to go with us, and it's wonderful because then you can take your backpack off. A five-year-old kid can carry a backpack a thousand times better than everybody in this audience. And so... We've got an entourage now, and we hike with this group, and we're going, 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 and we make it to the second sister village called Nawe. Hike into Nawe, and the kids have run on ahead, and so they know what we're coming, what we're about. We pick up another 50 kids, and we're going, and finally about sundown, we hike into Gatamambu, and Gatamambu is pumped. They are excited as all get out. They get us there. Um, They hit you on the back with these special tree branches to wipe off any spirits that you collected on the trail and things like that. One of the things the Gatamambu people do is if they show you respect, they're going to climb through your legs. So I got a line of about 40 people, and I'm a good missionary, so I've got my camera out, and I give it to my tribal father. I'm like, you know what, just turn the camera off for this one. We don't need to show this to anybody. And so I'm walking bow-legged for about a quarter of a mile as 40 people are scrambling between my legs to show me great honor and all this other stuff. And we get in there, and the Gatamamu people are so excited. And I lean over to my tribal father, and I go, Pops, what's going on? What in the world is this? And he says, you don't know? They think you're the guy. They think you're their missionary coming to them. I said, Pops, you have got to call the tribal chief over. Let him know I am not the guy. I'm coming here for three days, and you and I are out of here. And so he calls him over, tells the chief. Chief hears it, goes in one ear, out the other. Everybody's so excited, it's not a big deal. Well, we're there for three days, and everywhere we go... I mean everywhere, you've got a crowd of kids that are following you. And the word about what you're doing is flying around the village. There's these bark, uh, it's a bark floor that we're sleeping on with bark walls. And every time we woke up in the morning, there's this line of white eyeballs going up the crack from these little, he's awake, he's awake, and word flies through the village. You're eating your meal and eating it there, and you look down through the floor cracks, and there's people, yeah, he's eating just like us, oh my goodness. Go to the outhouse, I tell you what, you wear a towel around yourself and try and get down, yeah, yeah, he goes to the bathroom just like us, he's got all the same parts. Um, And finally, three days of doing video and taking language samples and all this other stuff, and we get to the end of it, and... uh, we start third, the third morning. I get up, get on the satellite phone, call the pilot, tell the pilot we're going to be at this airstrip at such and such a time. Uh, I'll give you a call if anything changes, but that's the plan. And so everything's locked in motion. we got to get moving. We start tying our shoes on. And sure enough, the little kids are seeing this. Word travels around the village like wildfire. And uh, the chief shows up at the house and he goes, we got to have a meeting. And we got to have a meeting right now. And so he takes us to this place called the house boy. And the house boy is where all the men meet together. And he made an exception in this one time. And he let the tribal, some of the tribal ladies, the leaders' wives, come to the meeting. So I sit down at my spot at the house boy. And I've got these uh, chief, two of his wives, sitting on either side of me. And these are the two most awesome ladies. They have no teeth left in their head from chewing betel nut. And they have pure white hair because they're older ladies. He's the chief. And they're sitting there. And I got these hairy arms and so they're rubbing my arms back and forth and they just get such a kick out of it and kind of hands are sneaking in here oh let's keep that clamped down and they're just awesome old ladies and the chief gets up and the chief goes all right i see that uh, i see that you're getting ready to go and uh 
I, I just, I want to ask you, I want to know, how long will it be till our missionary comes? How long will it be to the one that's going to give us the talk till he comes? I said, well, it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. I'm trying to give him a diplomatic answer. I, I don't know. I mean, this could be years. It could be months. Who knows? And he goes, no, 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 no. He's not the chief for no reason. He, he, he goes, no, I want to know how many moons will go past until our missionary comes. I said, well, it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot, a lot of moons. And he's getting ticked, and he's starting, his frustration starting to bleed over, and he goes, no, I want a number. Give me a number. How many moons will go by until our missionary comes? And my tribal father, who's sitting right next to me, is hearing all this, because this is going through a couple interpreters, and he says, I got this. I got this. Like, Pops, please, that'd be awesome. Stand up and say something. Because Pops Lucas was the one who wrote the letters to get us into Yembe Yembe. And Pops Luke stands up, and I'll never forget it for as long as I live. He stands up and he says this. Look around. Look around at everybody in this house wind. House boy. Everyone with gray hair will be dead before this talk gets to you. That's how long it will take. That's how long it will take. Two ladies on either side of me. Hands come off, heads go down. They got gray hair. And guys, we came into that village as conquering heroes. We left out of that village like we were sneaking out. It was so sad. A couple of people waving goodbye. People are crying. Everyone with gray hair will be dead before this talk gets to you. Before I came back to the United States, the Gatamambo people gathered together some money, and they sent out this guy. His name was Yagubika. And Yagu... Uh, he came out all the way to Wewak, and he didn't have clothes uh, like this or whatever. He had to buy some clothes. His shoes are too big, and he shows up at the gate uh, about two weeks before we boarded the airplane to go to Fiji, Fiji to LAX and make it here. And Yagu shows up, and sure enough, I get out there, and he comes up from behind, and he doesn't give me a bear, big hug. He climbs down. I'm trying to figure out what he's doing, why he's head-butting me in the knee, and oh, yeah, I forgot. And so I spread and he crawls between my legs. Gives me this huge hug, and he says, uh, the talk has started to come true. The talk has started to float to the top. The gray hairs have started to die, but we've got more gray hairs that are coming up. How much longer will we wait? How much longer will we wait? Yagu, I don't know. I really don't know. And as of this day, we still don't have somebody to go into that tribe. We still don't have someone to take this book to teach them in their language. Guys, we have a job to do. We have a job to do as the church. And I know this is heavy. I know it's harsh. But these are the realities of what we've been left to do. Let's make sure that we live sacrificially. We speak sacrificially. We allow our children to hear these things. And we don't finish until this job is done. I want to close today. Uh, the Yembe Yembe's didn't know what to do. They wanted to send presents back to uh, <laughs> the... <laughs> they wanted to send a present back to the churches that supported us, that sent us over there. And so they were trying to rack their brains, go, what can we send? And I just, I don't know, do something. And so um, this is one of the most useful tools in the Yembe Yembe. It is a garden builder, a canoe maker, a husband chaser. It's everything. So um, if Chad's here, have Chad come up. This New Testament, uh, which you guys had a part in bringing to the Yembiembis, and this is just representative of what you guys have invested in. And I'm very, very thankful for that. So from the Yembiembi Church to you guys, thank you guys so much. It has Yambi Yambi carved on it. We'll put it in the office just as a warning. <laughs> Counseling isn't going well. We can just <laughs> take care of it right there. Um, <clears throat> no hurry. Put you out of your misery. Thank you very much, Brooks. We'll also find a way to do something as far as posting this New Testament. That's pretty exciting to be a part of in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I can't, I can't think of a greater honor as a church. Um, than to be a part of seeing the gospel go to an unreached people group like this. Um, I, I thank God for the privilege of knowing the entire Buser family and being able to partner with them in the way that we have. Such an incredible privilege. I want to pray, um, and then we'll sing and take the Lord's Supper together. But 
I want to tell you a couple of things before I pray. One, if you want to watch that whole video uh, that Brooks showed us, he just showed us the last part of. It's amazing. It's 30 minutes long. You can watch it on Vimeo still, right? I, you can buy it on Amazon or you can go on Vimeo for free and look up Yembi Yembi and watch it on, on, on Vimeo. I'd encourage you to watch it. Um, it's hard to make it through without being emotionally, you know, moved by by the story, and so I'd encourage you to watch that and see sort of the whole story played out. Also, they have support cards on the back table if you want to continue to be reminded to pray for Brooks and Nina. Um, they're at a transition point in their own ministry. You guys have heard me praying for that for some time. Uh, continue to pray for them as they make decisions um, in, in that transition point. And, and finally, if you're somebody here who's like, man, I really am somebody who thinks to myself, I'd like to go to Radius and get trained and go do this. I'm pretty serious about it. Maybe we need to reorient the priorities of our lives and rethink what we're doing. And you want to have more discussion about this? Brooks will be here afterwards. Brad Buser, Brad, can you raise your hand? Brad is president, well, well, what are you, the director of Radius? Sort of basically running Radius International for us currently. Many of you have heard from him or seen him before. Welcome to talk to Brad. Um, if there's a few of you who are saying, man, I really want to know more, Brad is speaking tonight at Perspectives. And I'm going to do this for you, Jeff. I'm just, sorry, I'm just going to invite you to come 5.30 Calvary Bible Church in the chapel, um, which is at Calvary Bible. And I just invite you to come and hear Brad. He'll be telling his story there and walking through what they did missiologically. And, and it, it, will, it will challenge you. I will, I will say this. There's probably, among the people I personally know, few people who've made as much of an impact on the way I see um, the, the ministry of the church and missions in the way that Brad has. God has used him powerfully in my life, in the lives of lots of people. I would love for you to hear from him, obviously, um, even in the life of his own sons who've gone out in, in the same way. And so I encourage you to um, consider that's 530 at, Cal- at Calvary Bible, um, right on Manor, in the chapel back there. So um, with that said, let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the privilege of partnering with um, the abusers. We, we certainly don't deserve the privilege of, of having even a part in prayer or financial support and, and seeing your word come to a people who've never heard of your word, who've seeing a people come to faith in your son and so be saved. Them joining with us as we sing the praises of your son. Thankful for that great privilege. We're thankful that your son was so clear about our task to make him known so that we might share the privilege we have of knowing him with those who do not yet have that. Pray that we would be diligent to keep your word, that we would either diligently attend to going or to sending others but that we would not be in any way, shape, or form lax with regard to your command. We're thankful for the privilege of being able to obey that command. Pray that we would well for the sake of your son's name. In Jesus' name, amen.